I don't feel that anyone would say that Semaphore is like really all of a sudden established itself as a game changing thing. I just wonder when we're going to get that sort of moment at which it's like Semaphore has the thing. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, December 7th. Today, Dylan Byers joins me with the latest buzz on Semaphore, the global news startup that launched in the fall with big funding and even bigger aspirations. We're now a few months into the project. Is it living up to the hype? And later, Julia Yaffe is here to discuss the latest horrific escalation in the Ukraine-Russia war and what it means for the Biden administration's endgame. We hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers. Dylan, how are you, man? I'm good, Peter. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Hey, Dylan, I want to talk to you about Semaphore. Last week, Bill Spindle, who was covering climate for Semaphore, did a Twitter thread basically saying he was quitting and that the company was, quote, marred by an overdependence on Chevron advertising. He basically said that, you know, Chevron ads were appearing in his climate coverage, and he asked them to change it. He resigned. The company had a somewhat different take on this. But it just sort of reminded people that, oh, yeah, Semaphore's there. What's your take on where they're at right now? Are they in trouble or are they okay? Is this just a little bump in the road? First of all, we're a startup. We've been around 15 months. They're a startup. They've been around a couple of months, I think. You want to afford them runway, uh, just like we would like to be afforded runway. You want to have time to work out the kinks. Look, certainly when I think about it from the perspective of a media reporter, it's a lot easier when I'm covering big institutions like CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post. They should be held to a certain standard. And startups should be, again, afforded that runway. I think the most telling thing about what is actually turns out to be just sort of a very minor little controversy over in Semaphore world is that all of a sudden it was like, oh, right, Semaphore. Semaphore's there. And I'm sure from where Ben Smith and Justin Smith are sitting they are seeing some great reporting that their people are doing. They take note of every scoop that moves across the transom. And I think they have a lot to be proud of in that regard. At the same time, I think, like, what is the story that they have told so far? And it is one where largely they are gaining attention for things that are sort of controversial or just sort of strange. And and it's not always their own fault. But you have, for instance, the Sam Bankman-Fried investment which Justin had to write a whole note about. You know, he had to disclose that they hadn't even closed their safe uh, financing. And so there's that. And then there's this thing where like Ben Smith or Mac and Max Tanney had this piece on Juno Diaz. And that piece apparently was like sort of marred with errors. And then you've got this Bill Spindle thing, which is when it came out, it sounded like there was something shady going on with the Chevron advertising or or in the way it was phrased, it was almost, did Chevron like pull out as an advertiser? No, I think what actually happened here is is Bill probably wasn't the right fit for Semaphore or Semaphore wasn't the right fit for Bill. And they parted ways. And I think Ben is probably looking for a new climate reporter. Whatever the case, these are just, these are not the sort of things. And so you're thinking like, what, what is happening at Semaphore? What story are they telling? You know, I remember when Ben left Politico to go to BuzzFeed and it it almost felt, and I'm sure it wasn't, but it almost felt like immediately BuzzFeed 
was this thing that we were all had to pay attention to around the 2012 election cycle. One, because it had sort of caused everyone to pay attention to like listicles, you know, like 28 ways that Mitt Romney, whatever. And then the other one was because they were actually getting some really good groundbreaking scoops and they were immediately forcing themselves into the conversation. I don't feel that anyone would say that Semaphore is like really all of a sudden established itself as a game-changing thing or that it's really inserted itself into the conversation beyond some niche beats. Maybe it doesn't need to. It's got plenty of runway, raised, I believe, about $25 million. Perhaps they have some time. It is just, I think, all of the promises going into it, all of the the sort of aura that surrounds Ben Smith. I just wonder when we're going to get that sort of moment at which it's like Semaphore has the thing that everyone in the media and beyond feels like they really have to turn their attention to. And if that's not what they're going to do, are they capable of just sort of plodding along as they are? And what does Semaphore 2.0 look like? Because so far, it can often feel underwhelming. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think Ben might have said this. Maybe this is just the conversation I had with Ben, where I feel like they weren't going to totally just like be a scoop machine. That's certainly what Ben is known for as a journalist and editor. I mean, I remember when I wrote my study about Twitter and political journalism, Ben told me, quote, scoops are the coin of the realm in political reporting, uh, especially on the internet and in the Twitter age. And I feel like they've set out to be more of like a full spectrum kind of sophisticated news organization where they're not just dependent on, on scoops and they're not just concerned with driving the Twitter conversation. I think you do need scoops. I think that's in a lot of ways how you make impact. One thing I'm interested in though is like, yes, they launched in Washington, um, but they also have like an Africa reporter and, and they're covering China. I'm interested if the, like any of their stuff is like landing overseas. Are people in, in London and Hong Kong reading it? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but that's also part of the mission, at least in, in their launch was to reach the world and to cover the world, not just cover Washington and New York. Right. I think, though, to arrive at that place where you are, you know, sort of make a case to be sitting at the table with with those global publications, the likes of FT or The Economist or what have you, that you have to insert yourself into the conversation somehow. It's not like the world just needs yet another one of those publications for, you know, when you're when you're in the like Lufthansa airport lounge. So what are they doing on that front? And you speak to international coverage, like how how are they intending to grow that? It very much feels like a soft launch, uh, especially when weighed against what was promised. Maybe they don't need to be scoop machines. Maybe they see themselves as being sort of like above that and they want to create this sort of authoritative voice for global news. But I don't really believe that. I see them fighting so hard for these little scooplets that they publish in in their newsletters that leads me to believe that they still understand the currency. You know, it goes back actually to when they launched. One of the things when they launched, and it's like judging something on day one is always very hard, but why didn't they have a sort of huge landmark interview? If you are the new global publication, shouldn't you be sitting down with a Biden? Ideally, you get a Putin. If not, maybe you get Zelensky. And same on the business side, on the global finance side. Who's this big conversation in Brussels? And I keep seeing this sort of like trying to betray that they've got the inside track by these things saying like one good text with whoever. And then you see the text and it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. It's like, why did you publish this in the first place? A, mission still isn't clear to me. B, execution seems to be falling short. I don't know if they exactly know their lane yet. I am 
on their website. I'm just poking around. I'm looking for advertising here. Um, not that display ads are <laughs> the coin of the realm either uh, in advertising and digital advertising, but I don't. Okay, we got a Verizon ad that might just be a display ad. I don't know. I like. Is it your sense that they're making money? I mean, Chevron. Chevron was clearly <laughs> spending. No, I think my understanding is they went in asking for a lot more ad money than they ended up with, and they keep, had to sort of keep bringing the bringing the overall ask down pretty significantly. What is going to drive the strength of the advertising business is going to be the editorial. And again, I'm just not seeing that show up. And and again, maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, we're, we're, as we're scrolling through right now, there's an article about um, $25 million venture debt for future Africa. And it's like, is that maybe maybe this stuff is landing in Africa in ways that we're just not seeing here in the States. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to know. For two guys who spent so much time rolling this thing out with sort of like, you know, glowing New York Times profiles and big promises about the future. It's like they got to launch day and they decided they were going to stop telling a story. I guess what I would say here is that when you're a media reporter, one thing you watch is not just what's happening. You watch the narrative around what's happening, which can be extremely significant for the power of a brand and its reputation. And with with all of this, these various sort of little controversies and bigger controversies, questions around what they're doing and why haven't they had as much impact as, as we thought and, and what is the ad money, you were starting to see the narrative get away from them. And I've watched the narrative get away from people. I've watched the narrative get away from Chris Licht. <laughs> you know, I've, wa- I've watched the narrative get away from the Washington Post. Things get really hard once you're behind the eight ball. And so I think they are in need of some victories. Yeah. And like, just, you know, before you go, two quick caveats, like you said, they should have time to build. We'll see what happens. I mean, they have launched with such ambition and promising to cover the world. (laughs) That's a grand ambition. And so they should be given uh, some time to work out the kinks. And then two, launching a media business in this market is tough, tough going because of advertising, pullback on advertising, you know, it's hitting everybody. So that's the other thing we should keep an eye on. Um, Dylan, thanks so much, man. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Julia Yaffe is here with the latest on Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, and I'm very excited to be talking to Julia Yaffe. Hey, Julia. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I want to talk about the war in Ukraine, which you know as well as anyone, sort of comes in and out of the headlines with the ebb and flow of the fighting. That's partly a function of the American attention span, our own domestic news cycle, but it also reflects the fact on some level that the war has shifted into a sort of different register, especially since the onset of winter. We're reading more about artillery barrages, long-range attacks. Russia has knocked out Ukraine's electrical grid. And then earlier this week, Ukraine apparently retaliating with drone strikes inside of Russia, two different military bases that they struck at. Is this sort of what we might expect more of over the next several months in terms of battlefield tactics? For sure. First of all, when I read about those attacks on Russian military bases, one of which was only 100 miles from Moscow. I mean, that's deep inside Russian territory. It was 100 miles from the capital. It killed three people. It made me think of the fact that the Ukrainian government has been begging the Biden administration for these long-range missiles called attackums. 
which is military abbreviation for these long-range missiles. And the reason that the Biden administration has resisted giving them to the Ukrainians is because they say that, you know, if we give you guys these missiles, you're going to use them to hit not just Crimea, but you're going to hit Russia proper. And that's going to be a crazy escalation. And we don't want to go there. Well, here's Ukraine without Atakums hitting deep inside Russian territory, a hundred miles from the Russian capital, hitting military bases, not just like randomly landing shit inside Russia, but like precisely getting to these military bases, apparently with Ukrainian agents on the ground guiding these missiles in. And it turns out, it seems like they were able to retrofit what they already had to make this happen, you know, which again speaks to the ingenuity of the Ukrainian army. You've seen people in the Pentagon refer to the Ukrainian army as the MacGyver army, that they've been able to just kind of make do with what they have and retrofit all kinds of things and make them work for them. I mean, again, they just have this kind of if you just think about all the different kinds of weaponry they're being sent from all over Europe and from the US and South Korea and Australia, it's all different kind of stuff. And they all have to learn to use it on the fly and figure it out. In the New York Times report about those strikes, they described them as a, quote, brazen attack, which I thought was sort of remarkable word choice. I'm not sure what the intent was behind that language. But to me, it does sort of speak to this lopsided expectation that, sure, Ukraine can defend itself, but it shouldn't be raising the stakes. Yeah. It's a Western lens, right? The New York Times is a Western newspaper. It's an American newspaper. And America is viewing this conflict not as a war for Ukraine's very survival, but as a war that constantly threatens to get out of control and to drag America into World War III. Americans aren't really scared for Ukrainians. Americans are scared for Americans. And that's the frustration of a lot of Ukrainians because they very much see and sense that American hesitation and that Americans really don't really care about Ukrainians um, or don't care about them enough. I mean, it is brazen in the sense that it's daring. And I guess it is an attack. But those words together, you're right. They kind of imply that it is unprovoked, that it is just something that happened out of the blue as opposed to like a defensive operation and retaliation for the fact that Russia has killed tens of thousands of Ukrainian civilians, has destroyed Ukrainian cities, has destroyed half of Ukraine's electrical grid. I don't know if you've seen, Ben, there's been so many photos coming out of Ukraine of surgeons operating by flashlight, by the flashlight on their smartphones, people living without heat, without water, without uh, electricity in winter. And winter is quite cold there. Russia is trying to starve and freeze Ukraine into submission. They're deliberately targeting civilians. Ukraine went after military bases inside Russia, which I think are quite legitimate targets. I'm I'm glad you made the point that the New York Times framing is sort of a, a Western lens being applied. And, you know, on some level, that's totally fair. As you said, it's a Western paper. And there is a very real fear in the United States and across the world that Russia could escalate. I'm curious what the response has actually been like inside of Russia so far, if we even know enough in the aftermath of these attacks. Certainly there was a period in which Russia was saber rattling about the potential use of a tactical nuclear weapon. 
We haven't heard as much about that in a while. It seems like maybe that's off the table. But what is the view inside Washington as to whether that fear is still real? I think that fear is still real and it's always going to be real because I don't think it's really ever off the table. What I've heard coming out of Russia is just a lot of anger from the, you know, from the Putin loyalists that there's this sense among them, among these hawks, that somehow Russia isn't fighting with its full might, that somehow Russia's holding something back and it's still fighting with one hand tied behind its back, although that's not true. And every military analyst and observer will tell you that's not true. Russia is pretty much tapped out. Their military is pretty much tapped out. There's not much more that they can give. But yet there's this sense on Russian television where you have these, uh, I wouldn't even call them talking heads. They're like screaming heads. And they're like, now that they've hit deep inside of Russia and they've killed three of our people on Russian soil, don't you think it's time to finally you know, step it up and to finally, you know, rouse the whole country and really hit back. And it's like, what do you guys think you've been doing? And and where do you think this secret hidden military potential is? It just doesn't exist. In Washington, there's a sense that the worse things go for Putin, the higher the risk that he will use nuclear weapons, but that risk is still pretty low. And there's a hope that the people around him will restrain him because they don't all get to live in the bunker with him. Like they all have families. They all have money that they've accumulated that they would like to spend. They don't really want to live the Cormac McCarthy dream of pushing uh, shopping carts across a post-apocalyptic nuclear landscape either. Obviously, everybody wants this war to end on both sides in Washington. It's just a matter of how it ends and on whose terms. You had previously reported that there is some tension within the Biden administration over the question of how this war actually draws down. The White House has been messaging that, of course, we're going to stand by Ukraine no matter what. We're going to give them the military support they need. There's some openness to back-channel negotiations to talk to the Russians about figuring out how there might be some kind of settlement. At the same time, there has been chatter sort of coming from the Pentagon quietly that, in fact, there isn't really a military solution here, that at the end of the day, This is sort of a war of attrition, and it will only end when one or both sides sue for peace. I think that is probably the White House position quietly as well, but it is not one that they can openly embrace. If you look at the meeting last week between Emmanuel Macron of France and President Biden, when they spoke at the press conference, And the roles were kind of flipped because usually it was Macron who this time last year was constantly going to Moscow and Kiev and was trying to get the two sides to make peace. And even after the war started, kept trying to get negotiations to go forward and trying to get the Ukrainians to give on something. And yet at the press conference with Biden, he said, you know, the Ukrainians are so brave And obviously, we cannot force them to come to the negotiating table until they want to. And we are behind them all the way. And it was Biden who said, I'd actually be open to speaking to Putin, which is usually Macron's line. He was the one who was constantly speaking to Putin. And Biden said, I'd be open to speaking to Putin, you know, with certain conditions. What's interesting about that is the Kremlin shot it down immediately. Kremlin was like, we're not talking to anybody. 
So yes, we're at the point where it's a war of attrition, but we're also still not at the point where either side wants to negotiate. Yeah, it's of course a horrific situation. And in the politics of war, as, as you were noting, there is always what people are saying out front publicly and what they really mean under the surface. And sometimes those two things are intention. But Julia, I always appreciate having you here. Having your expertise on a subject like this is incredibly meaningful. So thanks as always for stopping by and um, we'll have you back on next week. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.